My name is Gustav Hoyer, and I am a composer. Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. Welcome back. Hopefully you are off to a great 2020 and enjoying a little bit of wintertime, depending on where you're at in the country. Where I'm sitting today, we have some cold weather, some snow on the ground, but uh, I've always enjoyed the periodic change in the weather. For today's episode, we are going to focus on a couple of different things, more pertaining to the world in which classical music is experienced, some of the commercial realities, and what does it mean to do classical music. But before we get into today's episode, a brief aside about why this episode. As I've been preparing to release my latest album, The Gilded Age of Steampunk Serenade and the Playing of Benjamin Harding, I have been encountering the business of classical music very directly. And in particular, I was having trouble getting the album on Apple Music. The reason I had trouble getting it on Apple Music had to do with Apple Music's very strict rules around the classical genre. Specifically, Apple Music will not allow a composer to be represented as an artist on an album, only the performers and the players. My immediate response is this is biased and favors dead composers because the assumption is the composer is an established name and that the artists, the performers, are the ones who need to drive awareness and who will be behind the work, not the composer. The composer is an established name, uh, probably long dead, and the composer doesn't really factor in. And so for the other platforms, I chose a neoclassical subgenre under New Age because it was the best fit that allowed me to engage the streaming and genre world and understand where is my music being heard, whereas the classical genre would not allow me that. I wouldn't have access only as the composer. I wouldn't have access to see some of the statistics and where music was being heard. And so I chose a different genre. Well, in the process, I had initially released it through Apple Music under the classical genre. It's stylistically more like classical music, of course. And when I went to pull that one down and substitute it with a new release, it got blocked by Apple Music. And this sent me into a month-long journey trying to figure out how to get Apple to release my music so that folks could hear it on one of the largest streaming platforms. And so through that journey, dealing with the question of what genre is my music and where should it go and what is the commercial machinery of the music industry enable me as the creative artist behind this work to control and to see and have visibility. So that's a lot of the genesis of why I'm exploring today's episodes is as a creator of this music and as the producer of this album, I came up against a very stony wall from the music industry and Apple particularly and it required me to ultimately release The Gilded Age specifically only for Apple on the classical genre where it had initially released and now I cannot have any visibility into how it's performing. That's frustrating as the producer and the force behind this album. 
And I heard from some of my colleagues that perhaps this would be an issue of some interest to the audience. Just how does a recording make its way from being ready to go to being available to you? Hopefully you've had an opportunity to encounter some of the music in my new album, The Gilded Age. I hope you've enjoyed it. And as you have listened to that, perhaps through Apple Music, maybe you encountered it on Spotify or through other channels, I wanted to peel back some of the layers behind what it means to put a recording out into the world and some of the both financial and practical barriers that exist for someone who is creating new music in this tradition. Well, what is this tradition? I thought it would be interesting to start with the question of what is classical music? We talk about it a lot with my guests, and I explore different recordings. I think we can hear a piece generally and have a sense of what it is. But maybe when you think of classical music, you think of certain things. Uh, We're going to take a moment, and I'm going to just do a needle drop on a variety of different pieces just to get a flavor of what classical music might sound like. So, for our first selection, when you think of classical music, what do you think of? Do you think of this? Or maybe this. Or perhaps something like this. Or maybe one of these.
everything you just heard would fall very squarely in the middle of what we would call classical music. You've heard a variety of composers from about a 400-year period. If you count the Gregorian chant, that reaches back to the 8th century. It's a huge range of music, styles, temperaments, instrumentation, and sounds. I threw in a little vocal music just so we didn't lose sight of that. And what you find is classical is centuries of European musical tradition, generally. More specifically, classical differs from popular forms in a couple of key ways. And I've been thinking about this a lot, and it'll become more clear as we get on in the episode as I talk about how music is produced and how it's brought to market, how it becomes available to listeners, and how these genres shape that process. So in the case of classical, all of this music, it is music that is defined first and primarily by the person who authored the notes. And we think of musical performances and live musicians creating the sounds in real time. It's a central part of human life, and there are very few people who don't enjoy listening to live music in some setting or another. Uh, And the players who are skillfully applying their bodies to these instruments to make sounds are front and center in the experience. Well, when we think about modern popular music, the band, the performer, is the center point. And they may come up and play a song, and we talk about most of that music is has lyrics. It has a vocal element with storytelling or poetry and, and musical elements as well. And we observe these performers creating these songs, and no two performances of that song are going to be quite alike. And that's true of any two performances of any type of music. But in popular music, the identity of the song and even the person who wrote the song is often less important than the one who performed it for the first time. When we think of New York, New York, we think of Frank Sinatra. When we think of Beat It, we think of Michael Jackson, these initial performers who may or may not have written the music itself. And the preeminence of the performer as musical artist is truly a characteristic of most contemporary popular music. And the songs can be covers. We have this phenomena of a different band or a different group of musicians playing the same song by a more famous artist or performer. That's a time-honored tradition of musicians playing other compositions. But even in the case of the cover, we associate the cover with the band who first performed it, not necessarily with the one who wrote it. Well, in classical music, the style of it and what characterizes it is the precision with which the composer, the original creator of the musical ideas, put those ideas on paper. Classical music puts a high premium on performers faithfully and consistently reproducing what the composer wrote down. Now, to be fair, classical composers like Chopin and Beethoven and Bach were also performers. So the tradition of the performer as the creative artist in the music, it's not new and that's not modern. That's as old as musicians. But in classical music, the composer becomes an artist distinct from the performer. In that, the composer wrote down a series of very meticulous instructions for an artist to recreate 
and to recreate as consistently as possible every time, so that when you sit down to hear Beethoven's Furlis, you're going to hear the same notes every time. Performers will play it differently because they're different humans and they're different settings, but it's the same pitches with the same relationship to each other. Whereas some popular music, folk forms like bluegrass, the folk-inspired elements of bluegrass, or, or even jazz, the composition itself is a loose set of guidelines that a performer and any given performance is going to take in a variety of different directions as the moment of inspiration indicates. In fact, there's more compositional investment by the performer in non-classical forms than there is in a classical form. In a classical genre piece, the composition, meaning the notes, their relationship to each other, and even which instruments play when, those are decided in advance and they're encoded in sheet music. That's the written instructions that musicians learn how to read and transmit their instructions to each other. So classical music then, as I've been thinking about it, is a whole genre defined by the precision with which the composer or the original first artist dictates how the music is to sound. And that brings us to the journey of bringing new classical music to the modern world. As a living composer, and certainly not unique, some of the guests on my shows have been and, and in the future will be composers like myself who have chosen to use the palette and the techniques of European instrumental tradition to create new music for our time. So we are living artists, and as artists, we will create this music often without any initiation. It is part of our creative journey in life to bring these things to pass. And as we do, we will use a set of musical tools that puts the composer in a seat of a lot of control where we dictate exactly how things go. But if we're going to do a large ensemble piece that requires an orchestra or a large string ensemble, we can't possibly play everything. And even to play violin in an orchestra, the way our music industry infrastructure works, the composer wouldn't even be noted as one of the performers in a large orchestra like that. And so as the artist who initiates, conceives of, and often produces the work, producing being the act of taking this idea, this impulse, and finding the musicians, finding the venue, finding the ways for that music to be brought into the world. That creative process is not unlike an artist who envisions a sculpture and commissions other artisans to help build parts of it so that the whole can come together. The artistic impulse is with the composer in that case, and the performers come in and they augment and they help realize that vision. This is where classical music has a bit of a disadvantage for a living composer. And I'm going to stop for a minute and talk about metadata and how a song is attributed or how a piece is attributed in different platforms like on a CD or, or in the industrial music market. So when a piece comes out through one of your music venues, iTunes or Spotify, there's a set of information that goes with the music file that makes its way out through all the distribution. First among that's the artist. Who's the artist? And that's really derived from this idea with, of the performer as the preeminent creative impulse, the one who is recorded playing an instrument or singing. 
And with modern bands, that may be the composer of the song. They often are, but they may just be the performers who are the public face. That's who you would buy a concert ticket to go see. In classical music, it's the same thing. You might see someone producing music of Johann Sebastian Bach and a recording of his works on violin. And that artist would be represented as the primary artist with Bach listed as a composer. Well, the classical genre in the music industry scheme has some slightly different rules about how composers participate in being identified on that album. And one experience that I've struggled with as a composer who produces recordings and creates the recorded music that goes out to the digital world, the limitation for the classical genre states that unless I'm playing the instruments on a particular track, I cannot be listed as an artist. And this is a little frustrating because if I were dead, it wouldn't matter to me. I wouldn't be administering a catalog of work. I wouldn't be trying to share my work with the world. But as the producing agent of this music, it's difficult for me to stay connected with my recordings when I release them because I rely on so many different players to create the music that I create. And I engage them and hire them and compensate them fairly to provide these services so that I can create recordings that I can bring to the market and I can track and understand who's listening and where. And it, it's an important touch point for me as the artist to know who my audience and where they sit. Well, the problem with classical music is if I don't play an instrument, I can't get access to that view. Even as the producer of the album, the one who created all the content and is financially invested in the outcome, I'm locked out. Now, if I were in a different genre, and if I did jazz or other genres, I could participate as an artist as the creative force behind these recordings and the one who does a lot of the mixing and provides the final okay on do the recordings sound the way they're supposed to. So the act of creating a recording is highly creative and has a lot of authorial power, meaning I could listen to 10 takes from my performers and I'm going to choose which one is the right representation of my intention as the composer. So there's a high degree of artistic craft that goes into even shaping a recording of a piece whose notes I'd already created. Well, the way the classical genre is treated in the music industry doesn't afford me that power. In fact, my music is scattered across multiple different artists, multiple different labels, and it puts the composer in a place of waiting for a performer somewhere to decide that their music is worth hearing. And it puts the composer in a place of not seeing a final listener ultimately as the one they're serving, but the performers themselves. If I can't convince performers to advocate this music, I would never have it heard by people who might enjoy it. And that's an episode for another time of the iron wall of resistance that some, that a lot of classical organizations, musical organizations, have to new music and the barriers they put up against people who want to express a modern voice through that set of tools. The bias has shifted overwhelmingly towards artists who are long dead, and we rightly celebrate their music, but the industrial structures of of the modern musical economy really resist the composer as artist, especially in this type of music. And so I just share that not 
for any other purpose, then it may explain why my recent album, The Gilded Age, went out under a couple of different genres, depending on which music endpoint it ended in. As the producer and the primary artist, I wanted to see and observe where this music was going and and use that as a tool to help spread the listenership of my music around. But for some of those channels, uh, I was prohibited from doing that, and I, I'm happily acknowledge the fantastic playing of the Budapest Film Orchestra, the great conducting of Peter Pedzik, who conducted on the Steampunk Serenade, and Benjamin Harding, my dear friend, who was a guest on this show. No qualms about offering them the honor that is their due. Um, so there's this challenge of how does a living composer who finds the classical regime, which we've heard is European instrumental tradition married with highly prescriptive decision-making by the composer before the players even pick up their instruments so that the number and the types of decisions the performers make are different than they are in popular music. The artist who writes in this style is handicapped relative to all the other genres. And that's frustrating because classical music, this style of music, it's already difficult to gain the attention of people who might legitimately enjoy it, but our industrial music channels don't draw the people's ears to it the same way, and there isn't a sense that this is a living body of music. When you compound that by the industrial incentives that obscure composers as artists, it compounds the problem even more. So, now I'll peel back a little bit of the financial element. And I only do this, some of my listeners have expressed an interest in this topic. I was a little reluctant to undertake it because I don't want it to seem self-pitying. It isn't. It's not so much about the difficulties I'm facing as it is more, I think, instructional. For people who like this music, listeners, you need to be advocates for it, maybe in ways beyond what you think. If it's important, if it matters to you, understanding some of the sh machinery might be useful, and it may give you some new ways to express support and appreciation for the people who labor to create this music. So one of the things uh, I have access to as I produce this music, it's some of the financial realities of streaming. And if you use Spotify, again, I'm a user of streaming services, so I do not exempt myself from this. And I have insight as a producer of music what streams generate for revenue for the producing artist. And I know for my players, I have compensated my players to even make the recording. There's a large upfront investment to even get the recording that you hear. And so the payback period starts when the music goes out into the world and people either choose to buy the album and purchase it through CD Baby, which would be my request of my listeners. If you like my music, uh, you can help support it by purchasing the music as a download. But streaming is a, is a nice way for people to encounter music for the first time. So very much support that. But just by way of reference, there's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about the minimum wage being a living wage, a $15 an hour wage. And that roughly equates to $30,000 a year in income. That's a pretty low income, but in certain parts of the country, you could certainly make it on $30,000 a year. And so if a musician who produced music of any genre now, not just classical, wanted to make a living creating just recorded music, what would that look like? So I did a little back of the napkin math, and if someone were to sell 3,300 albums in a year, 
they would make minimum wage for that year. It would be the same as flipping burgers or providing services in a in an entry level job. Now, mind you, this is minus this doesn't account for the costs of producing and preparing and delivering that music to the world. It's just this is now the straight revenue. Assume that costs nothing. A person would make minimum wage by selling 3300 albums a year. Which doesn't sound like too many, but for some for new artists, certainly it that's a very significant number of people to convince that your music's worth $10. Now, Let's say you want to go streaming and you want to improve and increase the footprint of the people who encounter your music. Well, what does it take to make a minimum wage if you just focused on streaming? So each of the platforms has a different rate. Some of the insight that I have, starting with Amazon, music is one of the better paying. And in order to make a minimum wage just per hour, someone would have to be streaming a track 1,172 times every hour. And imagine doing that for 2,000 hours a year. That would be about 2.3 million streams to make minimum wage, to make the same amount as a recorded musician who would be working uh, a counter job, any arbitrary counter job at minimum wage. 2.3 million listens to a track would just make minimum wage. And that would be uh, in the course of a year certainly not a lifetime of work. iTunes, it goes up. You'd need about 1,700 streams per hour. Google, 3,000. YouTube, 6,250. 6,250 streams per hour to make a minimum wage for that hour. Spotify, it's a little more than 8,000. And another service, Apple Match, was um, a jaw-dropping 75,000 per hour. So what you can hear is streaming and to a lesser degree, album sales, uh, unless you sell tens of millions of CDs, would be difficult to have a thriving life as a musician. And so there have to be other channels to make money. And recording has its own costs because all the performers and the artists who create album art and all of the marketing people who helps tell the story, they get paid too. And so when you start adding up what it takes to produce music, you realize that streaming services, when you listen to a streaming service, you're not materially supporting the artists whose music you're enjoying. You're enjoying it essentially for free. Most of the revenue, if there is any, is going to the platform that's offering it to you. And again, I offer that perhaps as an insight for those of you for whom artists matter and whom the creation of new music matters. I invite you to reconsider some of those artists you might choose to support, and any of them, not just me, but any other artist. Are there ways to support them financially by purchasing their CDs, perhaps have merchandise, and particularly live shows and other subscription avenues? All this is really to say that for an artist to continue to produce their work, it requires listeners who value that work to be creative and think about how they can support that artist. Live shows, again, are a great option. And I myself look forward to performing live shows for those of you for whom a live showing of my music would be appealing. I invite you to reach out. And if there are other composers, particularly classical composers, living composers, Reach out to them. Find out if there's ways you can support their efforts 
if they're enriching your life, if they are bringing richness to the moments of your experience and perhaps giving you memorable treasures, be mindful of how you can help encourage them back. And streaming and even album downloads are not the best vehicle to do that. And so with that, I'm going to close out this perhaps a little bit dry, more commercially focused podcast. I hope you found some of this interesting. Maybe there were some insights that were new to you about the music industry and how it works. Uh, it certainly can elaborate in more detail, but it's a bit dry. I, with our next episode, we're going to be getting back to focusing on listening to music. I'll be returning either in the next episode or, or shortly to the music of Elena Specht, who I interviewed last fall. We'll be li- doing an active listening for one of her works. And I also want to tease that there will be a new season of the Anachronism podcast coming, probably starting over the summertime, that will have a very different feel. It will be less interviews and it will be something a bit more whimsical and perhaps unusual, but I don't want to give too much away just yet. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining me for the Anachronism Podcast. We'll see you next time.